Um, after 36 weeks, we are finally at the end of the book of Genesis. So, if you've made it this far, congratulations, you can join our club. Now, uh, you've completed a year-long study of Genesis. Um, now, as we get into this, I've mentioned this a lot, but it helps to remind us. Uh, basically, the book of Genesis was originally written for the generation that was of Israelites that were leaving the land of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. So, imagine the scenario. You have these people, their father, their, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-great-grandparents lived and died as slaves in the land of Egypt. And they're finally coming to their own. And this book, along with the other first five books of the Bible, will basically help are written to help define them as a people. Uh, for so long, they've been kind of just surviving, just getting by day to day. But now they're at this point where they are starting to understand, they are starting, they were going to become their own people, their own nation. And so these first books of the Bible, Genesis in particular, help let them know who they were as Israelites. Similarly, the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole reminds you and me who we are as human beings. As we uh, learn going through this book, we quick, we, what we quickly discover is that you cannot separate the idea of who you are as a person from who God is as the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, Those two things, as you read in Genesis and throughout the Bible, are intimately related. They cannot be separated. In order to know who you are as a person, we have to answer the question, who created us and what did he create us for? So, as we see in this, all of humanity is therefore God-dependent. If we are to live uh, for our created purpose in life, we have to understand this idea. And so Genesis reveals not only who we are, but who God is as well. And as we close out our series with this last chapter, it reminds us of something specific. What to do when we lose sight of two things, who God is and who we are. In a sense, it's like the author is basically doing this kind of Hansel and Gretel thing and leaving a trail of breadcrumbs so that if you find yourself a long way from home, lost amidst the complications, struggles, and temptations in life, that the people of Israel and now you, the people of God, would know how to be would remember how to find their way back home. See, if you are uh, now, as we get into this, as I said, this is the last chapter in Genesis, so it's really concluding and wrapping up all that we've had before. So if you are new with us or you came somewhere halfway through the story, let me give you the Cliff Notes ver version of the book of Genesis. So basically, we begin with Genesis chapter one, and what it teaches us is that the God of the Bible is Lord over everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He creates the universe out of his very word. He sets the stars in the sky. He separates land from sea. He does all these things. And then finally, he creates man. And we read something unique about it. He says he created mankind in his own image, in his own likeness. And so what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, think about it. This is only a chapter into the Bible. What is, what's the first thing we see God doing? We see him expressing his authority, his lordship, his power over his creation. 
And so God creates man in his image as basically his caretakers for the earth. He places the first man, Adam, in a garden, and he says, tend to it. Uh, he gives him a, he blesses him with a wife. And so we have man and woman, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. The idea was not that the Garden of Eden was supposed to simply be this gated community, but rather the good that started there as God, as, God, as God created the universe and put man in a purpose over creation was that it would spread out and fill the entire earth. God, we were created to enjoy a relationship with God and to honor him with all that we do. But we quickly read that instead of wanting to submit to God as Lord, instead, what the result is, is that Adam and Eve decide, I want to be Lord of my own life. I want to be God on my own terms. And so they were, they, and so they turn from God, eat what is forbidden from them, and as a result, sin, suffering, and death enter the world. The whole creation is broken. But even then, as early as Genesis chapter 3, we see this promise. God says, I will send a seed. This is the first promise of someone coming to rescue his people, to save them from all that sin has created, all the, all the harm that sin has wrought. There will be this descendant, this seed of the woman, who will come and rescue them. And so we go through the story, and eventually we're introduced to this guy named Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And Abraham, we start to wonder, maybe this is the guy. We've been wondering, we haven't, it hasn't been revealed, maybe this is that descendant, that seed. God calls Abram out of his pagan past. He worships a false god, but God says in the land of Ur, he says, come with me to a land that I will show you. Follow me. And basically God decides to build his people from this guy, Abraham. Abraham has a lot of ups and downs. And if you're curious about those, you can go back and listen to the sermons. Uh, they're, all on our, they're all on our website. But basically, Abraham, he's a, he, he, he's a, he's a faithful guy, but he's not that guy. He's not the one. And so and then, as Abraham dies, the promise of God passes to his son Isaac. And then Isaac passes, isn't, isn't the guy either. And so it passes on to his son Jacob. Jacob goes on a lot, of, much like Abraham, has a lot of ups and downs. And through all this, God brings him, uh, brings him through it. And he changes Jacob's name. And he says, you're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel. And so Jacob has a bunch of kids, a bunch of sons, and from them become, is going to become the nation of Israel, okay? One of, ja one of Jacob's sons, like I said, I'm just giving you the Cliff Notes version of this all. One of Jacob's sons is a guy named Joseph, who we've been studying out for several weeks now. Joseph is his dad's favorite son. He gets a coat that's a bright colored coat that says daddy's favorite, and so his brothers. And so his brothers decide, I can't stare, stare at that coat forever. They sell him to slavery in the land of Egypt. Now, this all seems bad, and it gets from, goes from bad to worse. He rises to some level of prominence, boom, gets thrown in an Egyptian jail. But then God brings him out of it, and, then, and he does so for a very specific purpose, to save a whole bunch of people from a famine that's going to go over all the land, not just the land of Egypt. This leads to ultimately Joseph being reunited with his long lost brothers and they reconcile. Good name for church. Um, and so they do that. And as we, as we just ended last week, Joseph uh, looks is sitting by his father's side, his father Jacob, 
And, his, and, a, and after many, many years, Jacob finally passes away. And that leads us to where we pick up today in Genesis chapter 50. Now, guys, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the little uh, seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take it home. We, wanna, we want you to read it. We want you to study it. We want uh, your life to be changed by it. Okay? So our story for today is basically sandwiched between two uh, funerals, essentially. Uh, and so we start out in Genesis chapter uh, 50, verse 1. Having just passed away, having his, son, his father just passed away, Joseph mourns his father's passing. Verse 1, we read, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Okay, so Jacob is embalmed or mummified. Because you know what? If you're going to go to Egypt, might as well be mummified, right? <laughs> this along, uh, this goes along with 70 days of mourning, the maximum amount of days they would have done. And this is a way to show how high, this, this is the author's way of showing us how high in authority, how prominent a person Joseph and his family have become at this point in time. When his dad dies, the entire nation mourns for the death of this guy, Joseph's dad. And then we read in verse 4. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now. Please, therefore, let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph asked Pharaoh if he can go off and bury his dad back in their homeland, land of Canaan. And so Pharaoh says, Yeah, go for it. Take anything you need. So uh, Joseph goes back to the land of Canaan with a big funeral procession, procession that includes his brothers and a whole bunch of other servants and things from the land of Egypt taking the body of Jacob back. Uh, there's a there's a really small thing that could be missed here. Uh, there's a there's a little verb that we find in here repeated often in this chapter. It's translated "go up." Okay, now it might seem really uh, if it just in itself that doesn't seem like much, but that phrase "go up" that we find here is actually used to describe the exodus from Egypt as well. And so what we find as Jacob and his sons are traveling back to the land of Canaan is if you follow along, basically what they're doing is they're taking the steps that their, and their descendants will take hundreds of years from now when leaving Egypt, going back to Canaan. And this is important for a couple reasons. It reminds us that God knows where he's taking us. It reminds us that he knows the path. He says, you, you know, this might seem like you wandering in the wilderness, but guess what? I took your descendants on this a long time ago. And so the, peril, the parallel between Jacob's burial procession and the Exodus is found throughout this. So this is sort of a pre-Exodus where Israel, the man traveled after his death. So the sons of Israel, the nation of Israel will travel as well. So having mourned the death of their father and buried him, the family finally returns to Egypt. Then we read, the brothers uh, return 
they begin to suspect that everything isn't as good with them and Joseph as they have made they may have thought. So, if you remember back way way back to Jacob's own story, Jacob had another brother Esau. He stole his birthright, and we talked all about this. But basically, when Jacob made his brother mad, what he said is, "I'm going to wait till my dad passes away, and the time of mourning has passed, and then I'm going to kill him." So it makes sense that these brothers would suspect, uh-oh, I mean, we did a lot of bad to Joseph, and he's been way too cool about this whole thing, right? So maybe now that dad's dead, he's, gonna, he's finally going to enact his revenge. However, we read in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they send a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the, the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, we don't have any reporting in the Bible that jo jo Jacob, sorry, a lot of G names. Jacob actually said this to his son, Joseph. So it's mo what most likely this is is a scenario that they made up and told him. So if you've got kids, you know this scenario. Basically, one kid comes to another, I've seen this too often, and they go, Mom, Dad said I could have a treat. Oh, but I haven't talked to these kids. Where I don't know where this conversation happened. And so they go, hey, yeah, 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 just trust me. Dad said it was cool. Go get the cookies, right? This is the kind of situation we have here. They're going, oh, we forgot to tell you. I don't know why we spaced it when Dad was like, Anyways, I, did he not tell you? He didn't want you to kill us. <laughs> and so, and and so they're, they they unpack this. There's also listen to the way they say it. They say, "Please forgive the transgression of your brothers, their sin, because they did evil to you." Now, three words that are used to describe here, and they all have a distinct meaning the, to describe their wrongdoing: transgressions, sins, and evil. Transgressions has to do with overstepping an established boundary. In essence, you might think of a transgression as a crime, so to speak. It says, it basically it's saying, don't cross this point, and you cross that line, right? That's a transgression. Then he says sins. Sin is a more broad term to describe a moral failure. Uh, as Jesus taught, sins are not only actions, like that you could overstep a boundary, but also motivations of the heart and then last they use the word evil which we use a lot but one of the things that's helpful to understand is that evil generally looks at the effect of transgressions and sins okay so evil often can be understood as harm it's the effect of what happens when people uh don't follow uh what the rules that they should when they don't follow god's law and his will for their lives the result is evil happens okay so they throw all these things on the table for Joseph. They're like, hey, dad said, forget this, forget their sins, forget the crimes they committed, forget all the damage they caused. And having confessed their failures, their crimes and the damage, Joseph gives them this response, verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. Or, I'm sorry, am I in the place of God? 
See, the idea that he still harbors bitterness and anger towards his brothers brings Joseph to tears. Also, this is the second time in our story where Joseph is referred to as being in God's place. Now, this doesn't mean that Joseph is somehow deified, but rather that he holds a God-given position of authority and the ability to exercise his will. So, it breaks his heart that his brothers don't actually feel forgiven. He hates the idea of that. And so this helps us to understand our story. Basically, one of the things that's important to understand is that Joseph is a representative of God in our story. While God doesn't speak audibly in this chapter, by looking at what Joseph says and what Joseph does, we get an understanding of God's heart as well, especially in regards to the sins of his brothers. So we read on verse 20. As for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. Guys, this summarizes Joseph's story perfectly. God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly with them. See, that's the idea. The harm his brothers intended to cause did not stop the good that God intended. That is crucial if we are to understand Joseph's story. And if you think about the original audience, it was important for them to understand their story. They're coming out 400 years of slavery. What are we to say to that? How should we look back on that period? It may have been meant for evil, but God meant it for good. God knew, knows the plans he has for you. Now, it's important to understand this idea. God's good plans are not hindered by the evil of men. If you want the most obvious church answer example of this, look no further than the cross, okay? Think about it. God's plan for salvation involved Jesus being betrayed by someone close to him by the people who should have rejoiced in him, rejecting him instead, by betrayal and falsification of evidence, and even a godless empire to be in, in power in order for it to occur. Guys, if God can use all of that for his good purpose, then even the harm and the evil we experience cannot be outside of his plans. They cannot be outside of his power. See, there's no more wicked act that could ever have been committed than the murder of the Son of God. And yet, what do we read in Acts chapter 2? This Jesus, delivered up to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice two things happening here. God's plans and the work of lawless men. It's not that you take away from either of those. It's that we understand the fact that these things are, are all in place. It's not that one's working and the other's not. No, these things are both happening at the same time. This was, this was God's plan. Doesn't mean that the, that the actions of evil men weren't wicked. It was. It tells us they were. His plans include all these things, however. His plans are bigger than even what we could imagine. Even the work of the wicked to accomplish his good plans. What the author of Genesis wants the listener to understand 
is that this is how the Lord deals with things. Not only that, we see through Joseph's interaction with his brothers how the Lord feels about repentance. Repentance is turning away from your sin, okay? Turning away from your sin and turning towards God. Notice what he does. He forgives the wrong completely. The phrase in here could literally be translated, have nothing to do with it. Like, don't even mention this idea, okay? You think I'm still angry about that thing? I'm not. It's been dealt with. It's in the past. Guys, that's good news. Because that's how God sees you and me. That's how God sees us in spite of our sins, our failures, and the harm we've caused in life. He is still, he says, I am, he, he embraces us as his, as his sons and daughters. He forgives the wrong completely to those who turn from their sins and look to Jesus for forgiveness. They need not fear further punishment because God has already paid the price by sending Jesus to the cross in our place. Then we read about, so, so that's what we are reminded of. When you repent, when you turn to God and look for forgiveness, you have it completely. You don't have to have this. I think we often deal with this because we think of how we forgive others. And we think of how forgiveness is sometimes with us. I know we've all probably had a fight with someone and then like months, if not years later, they're just like, they bring that thing back up and you go, you're not past that. You're not over that. Or you're the person who does that, which we, we do as well. We get pat, we, we say, oh, you're forgiven, over oh, you're forgiven. And the first chance we get, we hold it over that person, right? You guys, don't miss this. God is not like that. When God forgives, he forgives completely. And then our story ends with another burial, Joseph's now. Last, Gen Genesis ends with this epilogue. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, or Manasseh, I'm saying it wrong, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a tomb. Joseph lives a long life. And he's able to see his great-great-grandchildren. This is a sign of blessing. Finally, at the age of 110 years, Joseph gives these instructions. God will visit you, and God will bring you up. That's the last thing he says to him. God will visit you, and God will bring you up. What does that mean? Well, God's visitation is a way to describe God making his presence especially known, right? He's not standing far off. He's drawing near, and he's going to draw near to you, and he wants you to know it. Sometimes this can be a bad thing in the Bible when he visits people in judgment, and sometimes it's a really great thing. Like in chapter 21, when God is said to visit Sarah and she becomes pregnant with her child after many, many years. We know that Joseph is speaking here is good news because of the second thing he promises. So remember, God visiting you isn't all, it's a little bit ambiguous. Is it good or is it bad? We gotta see. 
But we know it's good because of the next thing he says. God's not only going to visit you, he says he will bring you up. God will, that same word, this is that same word I told you to remember again. That we translate go up. This is bring up. This is the passive tense of it. What Joseph is promising is that his his descendants is that the Lord will come down and rescue him. That's what Genesis ends on. A promise of God's visitation and God's rescue. So, what does that all mean for you and I this week? Well, here's the big idea. If you remember nothing, if you want a big takeaway, do this. Turn away from your sins into the Lord, for he is kind. This is the important thing to understand. His kindness is what allows us to turn from our sins and turn toward him. It's what makes God's visitation not a thing to be feared, but a thing to be anticipated and looked at with joy. This type of thing comes up frequently in the Bible. We find God's people at a turning point, and we find the Lord calling them to turn away from their sins and to reaffirm their commitment to him. In order to make progress, they've got to let go of some things that's hindering their progress and to get a good grip on that which matters most. Now, if you recall, the Israelites, to whom this book was originally written, are going to spend 40 years doing laps around the promised land because of this. Because they wouldn't let go of certain things, whether it's the worship of idols, looking back on their days in Egypt and slavery through rose-colored goggles, whatever it is. There were things that they would not let go of, and so as a result, they're gonna do, they, they do not enter the promised land. The same thing is true for us. If you want to move on to what God has in store for you, there has to be a turning away from our past and looking to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. With that, without that and a firm understanding of that, guys, will never move past. You will feel stuck in life if you do not do this. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said a famous quote that I think that I think is relevant. It goes like this: For every look, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. This advice, this is advice that I think Joseph's brothers needed to hear. And we need to hear as well. They struggled to comprehend the idea that their brother could actually have really truly forgiven them. And sometimes we struggle with the fact of actually believing, even though God has said, I forgive you, all is forgiven. We really struggle to internalize that and actually accept it. Guys, the problem I believe is because we've taken too many looks at ourselves and not enough looks at Christ. Look. We confess our sins corporately every week here. And I would encourage you guys to do this on your own at home, if not daily, if not multiple times a day, okay? There's a real problem, however. Confession's a good thing. But there's a real problem, however, if we only focus on confession and never on God's solution to the problem of sin. See, either God has taken away your guilt in Jesus or there is now no other sacrifice. There is no third option. The apostle Peter puts it this way. He says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by given among men by which we must be saved. If we don't rest in the mercy of God, we are without hope in life and death. But here's the good news, guys. The Lord really is kind and compassionate. The truth is our sins are greater than what we can actually imagine. 
but his kindness is greater still. As we sang in that song, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. See, God knows the path he has set for you. He knows your wrongdoing. He knows your failures. And yet the amazing thing is he still loves you and he still calls you to walk with him, even after a million mistakes. He's visited us in his son and brought us out of the slavery of sin. The call for us is to rest in that salvation and to trust in him that he will gut to guide and direct our path. So as we close out this time, I want to end you with uh, another word, uh, another passage of scripture to reflect on. Uh, if you were with my, if you follow our devotionals, I, I spoke of this this last week. I want to reflect on the words Joshua gave to the generation that finally would actually enter the promised land, the land God had promised to Abraham. I believe it's still relevant to us where we are as people in 2021. Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15 reads, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we have to understand. Wherever life takes you, make a decision immediately who you are going to serve, no matter what the situation no matter what happens along the way. See, I cannot nor would I force you to do anything, but this much I can say. As for reconciled church, we will serve the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. God, as we are closing one chapter of our lives and looking for the next one, looking forward to what you have in store for us. God, we are thankful of the way you have showed your blessing, your mercy, your kindness to us. And God, we are thankful that you do not look at us according to our sin, but you look at us according to your son. God, help us to take less looks at ourselves and more looks at Jesus. Help us to realize that you have removed our sin from us. And there is nothing that can come between us. God, let us love you. Let us worship you. Let us serve you with thankful hearts. Be glorified by our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name.